You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mike Dukakis is playing the trumpet. The brick wall of an Ohio factory behind him. Employees, collective owners of this model factory in front of him. The song he plays is Happy Days Are Here Again. But it doesn't feel like that's the mood. As a chief executive that's balanced 10 budgets in a row, I've had to make those tough decisions and those tough choices. Once up in the polls, he was now down six points. Yet he played. The accompanying speech would speak to economic opportunity, the American dream, the rewards of hard work. New Democrat jazz. Some, right here in Ohio, want him to change the tune. The Ohio Democratic Party, according to reporting from Joel Klein, has done its own polls, unsanctioned by Boston. When they present the Dukakis from the convention, the Dukakis they see before him today, opportunity, free trade, tough on crime, all for education. He loses to Bush. And so they create a second Dukakis, a theoretical Dukakis, This candidate says it's us versus them. Workers are being cheated by bosses. Factories are closing. It's not fair. You're not getting your piece of the pie. I'll fight for you. This candidate, tie loosened, sleeves rolled up. Reagan's America is not good for all. When we run this Dukakis, this theoretical Dukakis, he beats Bush every time, the Ohio Democrats say. Sometimes by more than 20%. And here, uh, you might think that I'll say next, if only Dukakis had listened. I'd know too much about history, the dangers of hypotheticals, to say something like that. I wouldn't, because that would deprive you of that moment-to-moment psyche of a campaign, of a candidate, reading the information just available in front of them and having to make tough calls. Phrased another way, the Ohio Democrats, according to Klein's reporting, were urging Dukakis to become Gephardt, to, in today's parlance, play to the Rust Belt. Not all states might be moved by that message. Would that program work in California? Maybe it would. Maybe it wouldn't. One reason to not start losing in a campaign as a candidate, to not get behind in the polls, is so that you don't get unsolicited advice from everybody.
And that's what Team Dukakis, that's where they are at. By the time you get to the beginning of September, there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of, if Mike just did this, Sam Kuwata, California consultant, Democratic consultant said, Michael Dukakis has to regain the emotional ground in this campaign. In Congress, Richard Durbin, then a congressman in Illinois, says, the argument we in Congress keep hearing from the Dukakis campaign is that we're not going to let George Bush set the agenda. But Durbin said, Bush has already said it in this campaign. He says this publicly. Even Dukakis's running mate, Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas, says politics is a contact sport and reporters can't miss that that's a not-so-subtle nudge at the candidate at the top of the ticket. There's other attacks. Andrew Young, the mayor of Atlanta, said that the Dukakis campaign failed to reach out for help from other politicians beyond a cadre of insiders. It's the same crowd that won the primaries. He said the same thing about Mondale four years before. Here's the Los Angeles Times. Within the bustling confines of Chaucey Street in Boston, the campaign's nerve center, a prevailing sentiment is taking root. This was how Dukakis operated. The boss had an uncanny knack for sidestepping attacks, leaving many within the camp yearning for a more robust response. One eight said, they had a tin ear for mainstream American culture. Then there were organizational issues. When Bush spoke in Sacramento, there was no Dukakis defender in that city ready to pounce and provide reaction to the press. Dukakis is for gun control, but he's not taking away guns. He's not taking away duck guns. He's talking about getting rid of Uzis. Back in 1988, people made that distinction. Team Dukakis's response, an August 31st story says, ignore all of this. Dukakis has the best organization. Look at Iowa, best organization Democrats have ever seen. In Ohio, 15 field workers. Lanny Davis, running field for the campaign, said, organization doesn't get headlines, but you all see evidence of it in the fall. But for all of these people just reading polls and looking at the events in campaign, there's a lot of frustration. I flew up to Boston, see what I could do to help, said Bill Clinton, Arkansas governor. I pleaded with people, hit back, hit back. At least tell the voters that the federal government, of which Bush was a part, did all of the things that they're saying Dukakis did. If there's pollution in a harbor, that's on the EPA. Dukakis does listen to Clinton. He'll, he'll take a phone call from time to time. It's not clear how much it's getting through. As we'll discuss, Dukakis did end up embracing that theoretical Dukakis proposed by Ohio Dems consultant Bob Shrum and half of Dukakis's own team. At least he embraced it a little. And it's possible that this is a stew of polls that's difficult to decipher. It's possible that there was a comeback at the end of the 88 race. File that under who knows. What is clear that six points down after being a double-digit leader, that hurts. It's not elimination time, though, especially when you think about two trends. So Bush is in the lead, but two things to put in your mind. One is that Bush is overwhelmingly popular in the South, which at this point in the Dukakis campaign, they're not thinking of. There is a time Dukakis makes a trip to Mississippi. That's how confident they are early in the summer. Uh, he makes a trip to Mississippi, by the way, to the Neshoba County Fair. That is the same fair 
that Ronald Reagan is roundly criticized about starting his campaign there. Years ago, civil rights workers were killed. They were released from prison and a mob killed them. Reagan starting his campaign there in 1980, that's a big issue, still talked about today all the time. Very little known is that Dukakis makes a trip to this fair. And I think one of the things I had said on the Reagan podcast, you also have to understand, for this community, for that end of Mississippi, this is a very big, important fair. And uh, Dukakis thought he had a chance. All of that is to say, thought they had a chance at the South, maybe Georgia, you know, had the convention in Atlanta. They're adjusting strategies now. Bush is now leading in the South by more than he is nationally. So when you hear that Bush is six points up, you have to remember, it's a lot tighter in Wisconsin. It's a lot tighter in Michigan, tighter in Pennsylvania, tighter in California. Another thing, Ethel Klein, Associate Professor of Political Science at Columbia, was talking about at the time, women were now for Bush, 44 to 41. But in May, they were 53 to 35% for Dukakis, meaning that a lot of Bush's swing comes from women. Women were not enthralled with Bush, he said. They just aren't hearing anything from the other side. And then there's just a simple fact. If the caucus was in the lead and it turned and now Bush is in the lead, well, it could turn again. The caucus raises a good amount of money. So this is one problem that the caucus does not have. Some Democratic candidates have had in the past and don't have any money. Caucus has $50 million. $25 million in the primary, $50 million in the general. He's got nothing but money. The Bush campaign's going to have to keep up with him. But with all of the critiquing of the campaign, one thing Dukakis does do is bring back the campaign manager that he fired after the Biden video attack tape, and that's John Sasso. And Sasso, as many newspapers will report now, is the one in Massachusetts who engineered Governor Michael Dukakis' comeback after he lost the 78 election and won in 82. He's coming in as vice chairman of the campaign. Estridge is still the lead campaign manager, but everyone sees through that fig leaf. This is the guy with access to Michael. And sure enough, from campaign accounts, the first thing that he does is sit Dukakis down and say, you're being attacked, Michael. You need to hit back. And the candidate says, okay. Sasso does other things. He, he patches up a fight that's brewing, for the most part, with Jesse Jackson. And that's a good thing before, as we're going to explain, there's a place where Jackson can really do the campaign a great favor. It's never perfect. And there's too much, Sasso will admit, after the election. Too much public display of tension between the two candidates. A lot of it coming from no one wanted to be publicly critical of each other, which makes the press just see the tension more. By the time Sasso's brought back to the end of the campaign, he will talk to Jesse Jackson every single day, sometimes several times during the day. It starts with a three-hour meeting in a New York hotel and goes from there. And Jesse Jackson will receive some monies for security, not as much as that he wanted for his rainbow organization for voter turnout, but he'll get some Jackson and Dukakis disagree vehemently. For Dukakis, it's about going after Reagan Democrats. For Jackson, it's about turnout with people who are constituency groups of the Democratic Party and people who have been left behind. Getting them to turn out in great numbers will change the dynamics of who shows up to vote, of what the electorate is. This argument will never be resolved. 
The only thing Sasso will say after the election is it should have been a public debate instead of a private one. A person that's going to hear that message in 1992 is Clinton, who will be sure to be seen as citing his differences clearly when he has them with Jesse Jackson. One of the things Sasso uh, will say after the campaign is that in 1988, this is hard for us to imagine now, is that while the Dukakis campaign had tension with Jesse Jackson and things that the way he wanted and were afraid to attack him publicly or even disagree publicly, he notes, everyone talked about like Pat Robertson was going to be such a problem for Bush and then he wasn't. Everyone talked about the evangelicals going to be such a problem for Bush and he didn't really have to do anything for them. Well, that was from a speech in 1989, and it was true in 88, but the Republicans would have to pay that bill later, and, and you know, it would be a significant uh, influence on the Republican Party. But at this time, it wasn't. That was his point, and Jackson was. Now, the other point to make is that Pat Robertson didn't score that well. Did terrible in Super Tuesday, as we talked about in previous episodes, where Jackson had done very well. Nonetheless, what's important for this part of the story we're telling, which is just kind of the traditional narrative of the campaign as it unfolds, he patches up things in public with, with Jesse Jackson. And Jesse Jackson is now in tandem with the campaign, and there's calls every day with, its, with a major representative who's connected with the caucus. Let's talk about Willie Horton. We talked about it a lot in the last episode In the memory of most people, and in the narratives about the 1988 election, it's the quick story. You know, Dukakis was up, and then they ran the Willie Horton ad. Right? If I I had to give you one sentence for the Bush-Dukakis election, it would be, Dukakis was up, and then they ran the Willie Horton ad, and then Bush was up, and Bush won the election. You know, and it's not untrue, but there's a lot more there. But it is what people remember about the 88 election. They might remember the tank episode. We'll talk about that too. What they won't realize is that even though it was a huge punch to the Dukakis campaign, it had a downside. And the Bush team, in part, campaign interviews will let it out a little later after the election. It was begging for a backlash. Honestly, if you're going to do an attack like that, like the Willie Horton ad... You probably want to do something like that when there's only two weeks or one week left in the campaign. That's not what happened. It was a month, month and a half ahead, and the Reader's Digest article had come out months before, and campaign speeches referring to Willie Horton had been a feature of the summer. So that attack was out there. There was enough time for both the ad to kind of soak into the polls, to soak into voters' minds, particularly some surveys will show with people who already had strong feelings about race and crime, people who had prejudices. Surveys showed those people responded. But there was still plenty of clock on the election, and that ad wasn't getting the juice anymore after there's a moment. Here's John Sides of the Washington Post looking at the issue in 2016. Dukakis calls his slow response to Willie Hodden ad the biggest mistake of his political career. This is John Sides talking. He shouldn't be so hard on himself. A study that he cites compared voters interviewed before October 3rd, when the Bush campaign and the news coverage began to emphasize Horton, to those interviewed between October 3rd and 21. In the second time period, Bush's margin over Dukakis in news media polls doubled, from five points to about 11. This message seemed to work. 
But after October 21st, there was no effect. Sides believed they neutralized it. How did they do that? They bring out two people to respond. One is Lloyd Benson and newly codified friend of the campaign, Jesse Jackson. Both of them attack the Bush ads, both the Willie Horton and NSPAC ad, which is not officially a Bush ad, and the revolving door ad as racist. Here's Benson. When you add it up, there's a racial dimension, and that's unfortunate. He does it kind of in his old Texas senator way. Jackson says, it creates horrible psychosexual fears. Ugly, race-conscious signals are sent from that campaign. Now, the Bush campaign is going to push back on it. Bush is going to say, that's a desperation move. Campaign will argue the caucus is just trying to avoid criticism on his policies. Even the media, Charles Kruthheimer, will say the revolving door ad that the actual ad the Bush campaign comes out with shows mostly white people as they're showing that revolving door of prisoners. Washington Post editorial will say the campaign of Bush is clearly not racist. It, and now it's one of those... The, the Washington Post editorial will say, what is, what you guys should be upset about is Bush's attacks on Dukakis over the Pledge of Allegiance in school, something that a federal court decision forced on Massachusetts. By the way, the judge for that, Elena Kagan, to history, <laughs> funny thing there, but put that aside. The Washington Post says, you should be mad about the Bush campaign attacking Dukakis's patriotism unfairly, but in terms of the Bush campaign being racist? No, they are not. That gives the Bush campaign, they keep pointing to that Washington Post article in particular, like, see, the established guys don't think we are. The Wall Street Journal will go farther and say, oh, you know, oh yeah, Bush should apologize for introducing important issues that are actually on voters' minds instead of wanting to have a debate about Star Wars and the deficit. But again, Bush campaign has to respond. And now they're defending after October 21st, the whole Horton thing becomes a little taboo. The, the juice has already been squeezed out of the orange. There's a strong feeling that Kennedy Dukakis has, he's going to say this years later, that the way to attack someone who's going negative on you is to be is to pin the negativity on them. Say you're someone that uses negative ads. And... That's one of the things that Dukakis campaign, we talked a little bit about it last episode, will try to do. They have ads showing the handlers of George Bush coming up with negative ads in order to cover up the lousy record that he and Reagan have. It's guys in suits, Washington types, deciding on a message. In fact, when it'll, you know, there's a campaign consultant for the Dukakis campaign that will get a chuckle when people say, like, Dukakis should have ran ads against uh, Bush. He goes, we were swimming in ads. There was a whole floor of people in Boston, Hollywood writers, that would come up with great ads and caucus would edit it and throw half of it out. We were doing nothing but making ads all day. It was pin the tail and the donkey, though. There was no cohesive strategy, said one Dukakis media advisor who quit the campaign. On the handler ad, it comes back to the camp. You know, you're kind of telling people like, you're stupid, you don't understand politics. Estridge, her opinion was that, you know, they felt like there was a possibility 
in the end of the campaign there, that Bush having used negative ads early was going to get tagged with being negative. You can make a sleaze argument. You could make a nasty argument. They're running a nasty campaign type argument. But in the end, Estridge says, the spin on negative ads hurt Bush, but the actual attacks hurt Dukakis more than the negatives from being negative hurt Bush. There's also another opinion here, and it's Lou Harris, the well-known post uh, pollster still alive for this campaign. And he says, look, both of them ran some negative TV ads. Bush's were better. And one of the things Bush will point out on the stump is when Dukakis starts to turn to, to, to go with this attack of the backlash attack, you're being negative. He'll say, what about the campaign? In what about the convention in Atlanta? What about all those personal attacks on me? Where was George? Poor George, silver spoon in the mouth. But that Atlanta campaign, maybe not Dukakis himself, but the surrogates got very, very personal. I think in general, politicians, and it might have been a little different in 88, but people expect politics to be a little nasty. Therefore, being negative is meeting expectations. But all of this is a long-winded way of saying that, it, at least with, the, with this one attack, Willie Horton, that people always focus on, by the end of October, by October 21st, the election's going to be a little late, November 8th this year. It's been neutralized. And if Dukakis didn't make other mistakes, at least in this traditional telling of the story, the campaign story, you know, still would have had a, a, a fighting chance here. A couple other things to talk about. I call this series, You Break Everybody's Back, right? That's an Atwater quote about the South Carolina primary and what it was to do for the campaign. But, I mean, obviously, it's more than just breaking Dole's back in the primary. It, it has to do with the whole 88 campaign. Just an extremely negative campaign. But in a way, all campaigns have elements of it. One of the reasons 88 gets so negative is it's so close. So polarizing, the caucus has an actual chance. Democrats also have control of Congress. Republicans don't have a chance of that in this election. Actually, as it's going to turn out, um, they'll lose seats in the House, Republicans. Democrats will gain seats. Things get nasty when things get competitive. But I also call it the 1988 presidential election and the start of politics as we know it. And I think it's just the polarization is there, the handlers becoming moving from the background to the foreground of news media coverage, the new types of news media coverage, not fully there yet, but cable news at least, the closest thing to, say, a bit, bit, bit social media that you have, going to totally change the 92 race. And then little things. One I note, the FCC repeals what's called the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. And uh, there could be a whole podcast on that. I probably will do that. And many contend, this is the best way to say it, many contend that that brings on talk radio, particularly a very aggressive, about 98% to the right political talk radio. It is not a coincidence, probably. It, it, it gave safer ground to having more political content on the radio. Rush Limbaugh starts his show in 1988. And so some of the things we're talking about here, some of the issues and the attacks of the Bush campaign uh, are also being, in some measure, at this point a small measure, brought out and enlarged by talk radio. 
the Willie Horton, the Pledge of Allegiance, the Boston Harbor, and things like that. It's not a balanced kind of fairness doctrine view of like, hey, um, Boston Harbor is dirtier than Mike Dukakis said about his, she said his record was great. But also, the federal government has the EPA, so maybe they should have been the one that, why didn't Bush clean it up? No, the radio station doesn't have to do that. So this is starting, I'm not going to say this thing turned the race because that's ridiculous. I'll also note, uh, kind of on the other side, something closer to the way left politics operate now. R.E.M., lead singer Michael Stipe, released their album, the Green Album. The first, you know, hit song on that is going to be Stand in the Place Where You Live. You know, kind of encouraging action. Stand up. The date of release of the Green Album is November 8th, 1988. R.E.M. times its album for Election Day 1988. If that's not a reminder to their fans, and they're on Warner, but this is their first record on Warner Brothers, tying in music to voting. You know, and, and so many of the songs on Green are about control, about get up, stand up, take charge, don't allow these like false leaders like the world leader pretend, don't allow the the narrator and turn you inside out to keep controlling you. Michael Mills responding as the, the audience and I believe in what you do, I believe in watching you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. 
So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the things that I remember about the 1988 election, and it, to me, this memory comes up whenever we talk about social media, memes on social media, particularly political advertising on Facebook or things like that. I remember a flyer and just a plain old photocopier flyer. And you don't think about that much anymore, but just a flyer that might be left in a workplace, in a lunchroom, on bulletin boards, which were popular in various places. It's staple one on. The memory that I have is just being in the Poconos, in Pennsylvania, one summer, 88. Someplace, it was like ice cream, hot dogs, that type of a place, little pavilion. And somewhere, I do not believe it was a flyer put up by the proprietor. It was in a common place, but not right where you're being served. It was more like near where the tables were. And there it was, and it had Bush and Dukakis, and it had various attributes for each. But obviously, it was leaned more as an anti-Dukakis flyer. This flyer in particular, hitting the Poconos in Pennsylvania, was an anti-gun control. It probably was NRA because it talked about Dukakis was going to take away guns and George Bush would restore guns. It didn't specifically mention Willie Horton, as I remembered in that ad, but had a number of reasons Dukakis was bad and a number of reasons Bush was good while seemingly maintaining this little photocopied sheet, scotch taped to a wall, about that it was an even analysis of the two candidates. Now, apparently, flyers like that were present all over the United States. Um, the caucus campaign also had it. There's a um, specific flyer that they would give to union members, much more professional-looking flyer, but it was also a comparison of Bush and Dukakis in seemingly, by the font, equal terms, but a little bit more weighted towards Dukakis and how much better he would be for average working people. You know, and I, it's always struck me about these type of things. You don't think about it much now, but that, that ice cream and hot dog stand, there might have been 30 people while I was there, it doesn't take long to eat hot dogs and ice cream. So you're cycling through different crowds for a long time. Perhaps in a, a few weeks in the summer, thousands of people may have seen that little flyer. Changing the, the vote in Pike County, Pennsylvania. The Maryland GOP party puts out a flyer that is much more direct. And it says, Is this your pro-family ticket for 1988? And it has a picture of Dukakis and Willie Horton. If Dukakis is elected, someone like Horton can visit your family too. When asked about it, a campaign manager, James Baker, the Bush campaign, said, we can't control every party organization. And Roger Ailes says the same. You can't control all of that. People are going to do what they're going to do. Well, there are just... 50 state organizations. You see, it would seem at least at the state level you should be able to get a hold of that thing. But all of this is leading to criticism of the campaign itself in a way that you hadn't seen. I don't see it as much in 76 with Ford and Carter or 84 with Reagan and Mondale or that sort of thing. And you, Before the race is over, you already have scholars like Kathleen Hall Jameson, University of Pennsylvania, saying that this is the worst election since 1964. Newsweek 
has a cover with Dukakis and Bush, and Dukakis is like laying down in the mud, and he's got his tie all and his white shirt ripped, and Bush has wrapped himself in a cartoonish American flag, and they're both throwing mud at each other. And it says, mud in your eye, worst campaign ever. Still, in all of this analysis, of which there's a lot, you know, this may be the nastiest campaign ever. If it's just, this election is terrible, this is nasty, Bush wins that draw. We, we talked about Lou Harris's quote that both sides had ads, Bush's were better. Michael Dukakis has opposed virtually every defense system we developed. Uh, one of the things that Dukakis tries, some form of inoculation, kind of like what Bob Dole did. He's getting slammed on defense, and Dukakis doesn't understand why. He opposed new aircraft carriers. He opposed anti-satellite weapons. He talks about defense all the time. He talks about both arms control on the nuclear side and conventional ground forces. Massachusetts leads the nation in terms of the manufacture of military equipment. He talks about it all the time. He supports new weapons programs. He supports a new approach for matching the Soviet threat. But yet in a national survey by the Los Angeles Times, 54% favored Bush. 18% favored Dukakis when asked, who would best secure national defense? Now, if you ask, like, who cares about people like me? Dukakis is winning that. If you ask, who will best foster national defense? Bush out overwhelmingly wins that. Dukakis wants to change it. They decide, let's go to a general dynamics plant. I'll make an appearance. We'll show the candidate with military hardware. And you know what I'm talking about next. That comes in the form of a tank. Let's beef up the Dukakis image. We'll put the candidate next to a tank. Heck, we can even put him in a tank. The campaign split on the even doing this. And so are the campaign friends. They go to the southern governors and it's southern politicians because they would have the best opinion on this. It's seen as the hawkish area. Sam Nunn is like, you've got to do something to shore up on defense or you're not going to win this election. When they ask Bill Clinton, he says, it's a waste of time. Dukakis needs to play to his strengths. Jobs, health care, Bush is weak there. As Estridge will tell the story, they went with Nunn and the Hawks. Now, here's the strange thing about this story, too, is that um, there are people on the campaign advance team who say, this is going to be weird here because in order to drive a tank, in order to hear the instructions of the person of what's going on and how the tank works and all of that, you need to wear this communications helmet. And the communications helmet is is pretty big. The campaign's actually warned of this. They send the head advance man from Boston to make a special flight. He doesn't want to do it to this general dynamics plant. And then he gets there and says, okay, yeah, I see this might be a problem. So what we'll do is we'll do two passes. One is Dukakis is going to go by with the tank. We'll make sure when we do the still photo that Dukakis is not wearing the helmet. Joe Lockhart, who is deputy press secretary, later be press secretary in Clinton's White House, he recalls that Dukakis ended up wearing this helmet. And Dukakis said, I want to be able to hear about what they're telling me about this tank. Quintessential Mike Dukakis, Lockhart said. For everybody else, this was a photo op. Dukakis 
wanted to understand how the tank works. No one considers the possibility when they're doing this that, uh, except for some of the junior advanced staff, that even though they're doing a photo op where pictures to be taken with the helmet off, that the video, while Dukakis is, while the tank is moving, he has the helmet on. Reporters laugh. An aide at headquarters recalls, the second we saw that picture on the 6 o'clock news, we had pains in our stomach. And 400 miles to the south, Rich Bond at the Bush campaign, future RNC chair, said, my God, why on earth did they do that? He looks like Alfred E. Newman. A Republican operative, David Demarest, said, we had a lot of fun with it. For three days, every time we sent something to the press, like our little daily notes, we would say, like, thank you very much, and no tanks. He opposed four missile systems, including the Pershing II missile deployment. An independent guy had an 11-second snippet of this tank ride. We bought it, and we made an ad out of it. Bukaka opposed the stealth bomb, a ground emergency warning system against nuclear attack. And they add in grinding tank treads. He even criticized our rescue mission to Grenada and our strike on Libya. An engine noise, along with scrolling. Michael Dukakis has opposed virtually every defense system we develop. He opposed new aircraft carriers. He opposed anti-satellite weapons. He opposed four missile systems, including the Pershing II missile deployment. And now he wants to be our commander-in-chief. But it's not what the narrator's saying. The whole time this is going on, and these scrolling words are there, of all these weapon systems he opposed it, allegedly, the caucuses in that tank with the goofy hat. America can't afford that risk. The caucus had supported all the programs. He often would suggest different versions of them or different amounts of spending, but he had supported every one of the programs. And so, just as they're responding with Jesse Jackson and Lloyd Benson, Dukakis himself responds with his own television ad. He has the tank ad that Bush is putting out on a television screen in his own ad, and then he goes over and turns the TV off. And then says, aren't you tired of negative campaigning? Tries to spin it around that. An aide in the Dukakis campaign would say later, we just gave more attention to the tank ride. That's something that maybe works better with cable TV, faster uh, news coverage, maybe something that works better with today's social media, where people on Twitter can provide more information. You know, the caucus actually supported all those web. This is a lie. This is basically a lying ad or something like that. Some enterprising social media user could find Bush with a goofy hat somewhere. That doesn't happen in 1988 in that in this news environment. So maybe Dukakis making this like meta arguments might have been a little ahead of his time. The polls say the number one domestic issue to a majority of voters is drugs. What is there about these times that drives or draws so many Americans to use drugs? I think we've seen a deterioration of values. I think for a while as a nation we condoned those things we should have condemned. For a while, as I recall, it even seems to me that there was talk of legalizing 
or decriminalizing uh, marijuana and other drugs. And I think that's all wrong. So we've seen a deterioration in values. And one of the things that I think we should do about it in terms of cause is to instill values into the young people in our schools. We got away. We got into this feeling that value-free education was the thing. And I don't believe that at all. I do believe there are fundamental rights and wrongs as far as use. And, of course, as far as the how we make it better, yes, we can do better on interdiction. But we've got to do a lot better on inter, in, and we've got to do a lot better on education. And we have to do, be tougher on those who commit crimes. We've got to get after the users more. There's only two debates in the 1988 election. That's negotiations between the two candidates. It's also what happened in 1984. There's also a vice presidential debate. So you start with the first debate between Bush and Dukakis. We have to change this whole culture. You know, I saw a movie, Crocodile Dundee, and I saw the cocaine scene treated with humor, as though this was a humorous uh, little incident. And it's bad. We can help people to live better lives, and at the same time save money by helping hundreds of thousands of families on welfare to get off of welfare and to become productive citizens again. And, you know, it's a sort of win for Dukakis. He's able to do a few things, as Sam Donaldson would say. Both did well. George Bush would end up using the word liberal seven times in the debate. And Dukakis would strongly defend attacks on patriotism. With one In one case, he would say, and I resent it. Thirdly, we have to bring interest rates down, and we will as we come up with a good, solid plan with the Congress for bringing that deficit down. And Talking about the Pledge of Allegiance, he says, you know, Bush presided over the Senate for eight years. He's never insisted that they begin their proceedings with the Pledge of Allegiance. Why not? On Willie Horton, Dukakis will point out what he's pointed out before in this debate, that Bush, the federal program, furloughed prisoners. And at least a few cases, that led to prisoners murdering people. But there is a distinction that Bush will note in this debate, that they weren't murderers. Although they became murderers in the case that Dukakis would use quite often, someone convicted for drug dealing, which would not have been a death penalty case. Bush's point in the debate will be, I won't allow murderers to be alive to be furloughed. I want them to meet their maker. I'm for the death penalty. Dukakis will try to score on Dan Quayle. He's like, I chose Lloyd Benson. You chose Dan Quayle. Bush gets a quick jab in. I hope this would be a friendlier night. Wanted to ask the governor if I could hitchhike for a ride on his tank. One poll suggested that 38% said Dukakis won the debate versus 29% for Bush. But given the stakes of the election, that really meant it didn't move the needle. Lady, I need you. If you answer this ad, you will find this handsome New York CEO to be 52, 6 feet, 
millionaire, respected, dynamic, fun to be with, and supportive. I'm looking for that special relationship. If you have the following qualities, 35, 52, non-smoker, bright, articulate, physically fit, physically similar to Dolly rather than Twiggy. Lovely lift leftist lady, psychologist and writer, seeks sane, sensitive and substantial soulmate. Striking lady executive, 43, 6 feet, bilingual French-English, seeks fun, charming non-smoker. 6 feet plus. The toughest trainer in New York sends his gym to you. Internationally trained, world famous, he knows your body, how far to take it, without becoming a slave to expensive machines. Radu, New York, home or office visits available. Business leaders may face decisions, delicious decisions, at our daily buffet, Le Patio. Every buffet is a superb French bounty. Cedrogia's furs, mink coat available in black gamma, umber dusk, blue iris, or black willow. Cedrogia's furs. Is your money giving you the runaround? Keep track of your finances with the Greater New York Bank all in one account. High money market earnings. Pay by phone convenience. That's right. Pay your bills by phone no matter where you are or what time it is. The Greater New York Savings Bank. I'm reading from the pages of New York Magazine, October 1988, coming out. Uh, magazine predominantly covering New York City at the same time that the election is going on. And I think it's funny. Look, New York City is not America, but it is funny to see some of the things going on, particularly for the part of the country that had some money and some of the choices available. Um, Those of you who, I'll do a little plug for the premium, those of you who have subscribed to that, you can hear the whole thing where I'm sort of vocalizing the magazine and all different parts of it. There's like a thousand things to do in October 1988 in that city. Different things going on. There's a, you know, it comes at the time of the Halloween parade in the village and also uh, a bonfire in Staten Island and things like that. Just among many things. Cheerful and go-lucky Italian-American. 44 romantic, cuddly funny. Enjoys the outdoors, sports, movies, and the Honeymooners. Stop smoking. One office visit. Lose 30 pounds in 30 days for less than $30 per week. Save $100. Join Paris Health Club, 752 West End Avenue, New York, New York, 10025. Join before October 31st and save $100. And we will even get you started with a new sweatsuit, a towel, and a gym bag. That way, whether you go or not, you can show off that stuff and tell people you go to a gym. The ad doesn't say that part. Introducing Minute Maid Premium Choice, the new Not From Concentrate Juice. I'm ready if you are. Pretty, female professional, late 30s, enjoys outdoor sports, sense of humor. Diagramless. 
theater, classical music, seeks insightful, successful professional male. Champagne. Early 40s, handsome, slim, fit entrepreneur. Seeks woman of inner and outer beauty. Non-smoker, sexy in jeans, or black gown. Open seven days, Eisenberg and Eisenberg are exquisite worsted flannels and midweights and blends. Silhouetted Italian shoulder suits and sports coats. We will serve you as we have since 1898. One of the other articles of note, we talked about Tanner 88, the TV show. It's canceled. By the way, the Tanner 88 cable show featuring a fictional candidate running for president in 88 is canceled before the time we reach the general election of 1988. It was novel. It had Robert Altman and uh, Gary Trudeau, the cartoonist, combined. Canceled on American TV, not really understood. It wins an award in France, a very prestigious TV award. That's noted. Also, there's that article from Joel Klein, shows a picture of Dukakis playing the trumpet. And talk about the division in the campaign. There's two sides. It seems like it's Estridge and Sasso, But I'm not sure if Joel Klein is right on that exactly. But there are two sides. Some people want to play with the same playbook. And others want to pursue that more populist campaign. One faction was said to favor economic populism as the main campaign theme. If they had their way, the message would be simple. Main Street versus Wall Street. Thus Dukakis is adding to some speeches. George Bush sat on the sidelines for eight years while Americans got beaten in world markets, while they mortgaged our children's future to foreign bankers, while a piece of America was being sold off every day at bargain basement prices. Yet, what Klein identifies as the Estridge faction, and again, I'm not sure he's right on that, but hey, Uh, wanted a renewed attack on Bush's long but skimpy record in public life. Bob Dole tried it in the primaries, especially in a memorable ad of a man walking in the snow, leaving no footprints. This strategy, with its inherent emphasis on competence, also sounded a bit more to caucus. The argument of this faction? Let's deal with the equipment we have. We can't turn to caucus and to get part. How can Mr. Bush be a leader when he's never been in the loop? I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration. Given the draw, the vice presidential debate was the next in line. And it was what's focused on. There's a problem for the Dukakis campaign in this vice presidential debate. Because, yes, you've got... Dan Quayle. And it's good and bad because for the Dukakis campaign, expectations are so high for Lloyd Benson here. He's well regarded. Dan Quayle has just become a point of ridicule in the campaign. And it's up to Team Dukakis. They start telling reporters, don't let this guy off the hook, Quayle. Don't let him just go in there. And if he spends 90 minutes repeating sound bites that Roger Ailes wrote for him, and if he does well with that, the real test you guys got to remember 
Is Kenny be the next president? Do your job. They're still worried because all Dan Quayle has to do is stand up. And expectations are so low for him that he'll probably end up winning it. And you know, when the debate starts, that's kind of what happens. He doesn't attack Benson. He wants to attack Dukakis and Dukakis' policies. And he's doing a lot of that. As a side story, in the debate in Omaha, there's a spin room. That means both campaigns will have people that will talk to reporters, people of some prominence. And in the spin room for Lloyd Benson is Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton. And so uh, he asked the campaign beforehand, um, what do you think I should look out for from the debate? Estridge is like, you better just hope that this Kennedy thing comes up. Bob Schrum was training Benson for the debate, practicing, and said, Senator, would you be comfortable saying that uh, Quayle is no Jack Kennedy? Benson said, sure. Lloyd Benson had been at Jack and Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding. So they rehearsed the line a few times, just in case it comes up. And so it takes a few times. The reporters keep bringing up experience, and it takes a few times that Quayle keeps saying, you know, this is the third time you brought this up. But I'm just going to tell you that it is not just age, it's accomplishments, it's experience. I have far more experience than many others that sought the office of vice president of this country. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. And, you know, Quayle's not wrong. He had a couple terms in Congress and eight years as a senator. But, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. As Lloyd Benson will artfully tell the audience. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. When you put it all together, yeah, you're, you're not. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. There's Bill Clinton in the spin room and, you know, has the easiest job in the world now. You just... You saw what the next vice president of the United States is capable of. And so the Dukakis campaign has probably its greatest rhetorical moment of the election. Yeah, and it has a real impact. E.J. Dion says, it helped to revive a badly wounded ticket. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. 
You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. The Dukakis team hoped so. They lost the summer. They lost the ad battles. Let's at least win the debates. John Sasso makes an ad immediately, attacking Quail, of course, and also bringing up the handlers are packaging Quail. The race tightens to about five points after this Benson, and there's really hope here. And again, let's bring up gender gap. You know, we're talking about women. Bush campaigned in focus groups for women, and we're able to find some issues that would turn them. Maybe they can be turned back. Overrepresentation of Bush vote in national polls, overrepresentation of the South in those polls. Bush is responding. He's hitting hard back. This is when the revolving ad is going to come out. The Bush addition to the NSPAC Willie Horton ad. And there's a second debate in Los Angeles. Good opportunity. Dukakis is not a bad debater. And then he gets this classic question from Bernard Shaw of CNN. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered... I mean, he specifically mentions Kitty Dukakis. What would you do? Would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? And Dukakis answers. No, I don't, Bernard. And I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. As a Democratic congressman will say, that was an ice man answer. I don't see any evidence that deterrent better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. We've done so in my own state. And allegedly, there's a... Supporter of the campaign that goes to Susan Estridge at this point, it's over, right? She says, yes. Caucus, after it's over, goes to Estridge. Sasso says, I blew it. So what happened? Because from the Dukakis campaign, as they're watching this, they had an answer. What he was supposed to say is to talk about how he was a victim of crime. Well, his family was a victim of crime. His father was tied up and robbed in the past. And his brother was killed by a hit-and-run driver. With an emotional question like that, that emotional response would have been a lot better. And he doesn't say it. Some of it's just a mystery as to why he doesn't. Now, I can also say in Dukakis's defense that probably actually mentioning his wife's name was a bit shocking and threw off the, the question. Dukakis would say later, I answered it as if it was an issue question. Bush would say, was... Some kind of politically correct answer. Should have said, I'd kill him if I could could get get my hands hands on him. For a lot of the campaign, you know, I could talk about how he wasn't ready for the Kitty Dukakis element of it or what have you. For a lot of the campaign, they were frustrated because it really seemed like Mike Dukakis once again taking the steering wheel when there was a specific plan. And he constantly wanted to just be himself. With the short amount of time in campaigns, there wasn't time for that. You know, for a lot of people, the election ends there. There is more to talk about. Dukakis would start to embrace some of that issue. The Ohio Democrats and Bob Schrum and former Gephardt people had brought up. And he would put into every campaign speech, I'm fighting for you rhetoric that he really wasn't embracing before because before it seemed like he wanted to move into that Reagan chair and still say things are pretty good in America. You just need some good education opportunities. Now it's like, no, 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 we're going to have to fight. 
Bush has to respond to it, even. Bush will say, uh, don't believe him when he says he's going to fight for you. He wants to get close. The Democrats can reach their hand in your pocket and, that, and things like that that he's saying. Dukakis does try out these different themes. He does something else, though, that's not part of that script. It's not what Ohio Democrats told him. John Sasso tells this story that they go to Independence, Missouri, and they go to the home of Harry Truman. And a lot of uh, commentaries that, well, Truman would be a Republican now. Dukakis is very upset by this. And they do a photo op by the statue of Harry Truman. And it just gets Dukakis emotional in a way. And he turns to reporters and say, you know, I've been accused of being liberal. Well, I am a liberal. I'm a liberal in the tradition of Harry Truman and FDR. Now, again, the way he's saying it is he's that kind of liberal, a more older style liberal, not a 60s style liberal. This is a bit of an ad lib that now allows the Bush team to say, see, I called him liberal. Now he even admits it. Now, let's talk about something else. I've, I've been alluding to this, that the whole way this campaign is told uh, is, is a story about a campaign, a candidate maybe not making the right moves. I also think there's something else to discuss. And it's related to how the Bush campaign is going to deal with the new Mike Dukakis, if there even is one. How to deal with the Dukakis comeback, even if there is one. They get a little nervous. They see some tightening in their own polls. Certain states, it's it's tighter than the national news is reporting anyway. One of the things Dan Quayle's going to talk about is that even on election night, Pennsylvania and Michigan kept us a little in suspense even that night. We weren't worried, but it was enough to give you a little suspense. And we've seen since elections like 2016 and 2004 that went in a different direction than expected. They'll find a weapon to counter this kind of new message the best they can. It's going to be what Nixon predicted to Bob Teeter that we talked about in the last episode. First, I want to talk about the invisible election that may have been going on and that people don't talk about enough, I think, in discussions of 1988. Because we can talk about Bush and Dukakis all day. We can talk about the tank, the debate answer, the Willie Hort. But what about Dukakis versus Reagan? As a candidate, Dukakis's real job, and this is the tough job, is running against Reagan. It's nice to think your job is to run against Bush and especially Quayle, but your real job is running against Reagan, running against those eight years. Certain steps that are taken in 1988, even some that might not have been specifically taken for the 88 election, it just happened to be the case. For instance, the return to the space shuttle space flight after the Challenger disaster. Challenger explodes in 1986, and America's shocked by it. And there's a resistance to perhaps sending astronauts into space until things are really safe again. The next mission of the space shuttle is October 1988. The launch is successful, the mission up in space is successful, and the astronauts are returned home safely. Who is there to greet them? Vice President Bush. And I think this is just one of a series of quiet accomplishments that are occurring in 1988. For instance, Reagan goes to Moscow, and that's a big deal. He had not gone, he had not seen any Russian leaders in his first term, and he had not been to Moscow. 
May 29th to June 2nd, 1988, Reagan goes to Moscow. And this is where he famously, when he's asked, do you still believe this is an evil empire? And he says, I, not anymore. I believe things can change, you know. It's the fourth meeting between Reagan and Gorbachev during his presidency, all of it in his second term. Reagan's the untold part of the CDA. It'd be fine if he's a bystander. He's not. He's distant from the action, but he's not uninvolved. We talked about that episode with the crazy rumor. There's no one else that could have delivered a message like that without a huge backlash, except for the president of the United States. Reagan was always attacking Dukakis. The budgets that Dukakis boasts of having balanced includes... Creative accounting that nearly sent New York City to the poorhouse just a few years ago. Dukakis would attack Reagan back. Dukakis would, would especially focus on the Star Wars plan, which was unpopular with a lot of people, seemed unrealistic and very expensive. As president, I will move beyond Star Wars and stargazing to fix stars of equal opportunity and equal rights and equal justice. Reagan versus Dukakis never worked well for him. Something else. Reagan gets the treaty that he agrees to sign with Gorbachev. He has to deal with conservatives in his party. The Senate approves the INF Treaty by 93 to 5. So Reagan takes on conservatives in his own party in a way Americans cheer. This is peace and prosperity in our time. This is the peace part. But you've also got the prosperity. You've got about 4.5% GDP growth in 1988. And that's higher than 87. Yeah, you have the Iran-Contra that's still there. And has not been fully resolved, but it is a year away from most of the hearings and events. Should direct your attention to something else not talked about in the Dukakis first Bush story. Ronald Reagan's approval rating. The year starts with Ronald Reagan at 49%. That's not great for an incumbent president. It's a little different now with polarization, but that's not great. It's only at 50% when Michael Dukakis wins the nomination, wins the New York primary, pretty much gets the nomination. When Democrats have the convention, Reagan's at 54%. When they go to vote in November 8th, 57% of Americans approve of the job that Reagan has done. Despite some variance, Reagan's approval, if you watch that, moves up, disapproval moves down. And it varies between polling numbers. I'm using Gallup. I find that if you're doing historical comparisons, Gallup's been polling so long that it works. There are other, there's a New York Times poll at one point that shows 60%. Approve Reagan's job. It's actually set up during a joke skit on Saturday Night Live, and they would have John Lovitz do the caucus, and he's on the stump there, and it would say, uh, you know, thing that hurt us is Reaganomics works. You're doing well. You're better off. I wish you weren't, but you are. So I think there's this invisible election going on, things that are positive happening. Now, those are the big things, but it's funny Reagan himself will bring up other things. For instance, the end of the Iran-Iraq war, peace in the Persian Gulf. Boy, that's an issue that has come back. Having to protect our ships delivering oil and other nations' ships delivering oil in the Persian Gulf from mostly Iranian, but sometimes Iraqi threats, was an important and stressful part of the tail end of the Reagan administration there. And that end of the Iraq-Iran war was considered a success we have a ceasefire in the Gulf. The Soviets have withdrawn from Afghanistan, and we work towards an agreement for Cuban and South African withdrawals from Angola. Peace is gaining ground. Where does Reagan make these speeches? Supporting his vice president for take the seat that he now has? 
Well, just as Richard Nixon had predicted to Bob Teeter, the campaign calls to bring Reagan to California in the last week. This is their counter to the new Dukakis. You got a new, somewhat populist Dukakis thing going on. Possible comeback in the polls. Just enough to scare us a little. And it's interesting because now you hear debates about the Electoral College. Well, in the last week, the only thing the Dukakis team, if they had any glimmer of hope at all, it's a win in the Electoral College. If they win the right states, they had 18 states, most notably Michigan, Ohio, California, Illinois, a few others. If they could win 18 states, even losing the popular vote, they'll get the Electoral College. It goes to the last couple of days. I don't need sleep, Dukakis tells the press. Night in California, sunrise in Cleveland, daytime in St. Louis. Dukakis ends the campaign, spending every moment campaigning and predicting a November surprise. He does a flurry of last-minute campaigning, including interviews 7 p.m. on election night. I wasn't kidding myself, Dukakis said. I thought we had a shot. What's the cure for that? A dose of Ronald Reagan in the state where he had been governor. Maybe winnable by Democrats, but usually safely Republican. Reagan is there to shore this up. Just like Lloyd Benson had said about Dan Quayle, he's no Jack Kennedy. Reagan says about Dukakis, he's no FDR. We remember the first one, but the second comparison may have been more effective. The results were a 53.4% victory for Bush, 426 electoral votes. No Republican candidate, including George Bush's son, has exceeded that number. It was a less broad win, pulling in from all regions, pulling from suburbs, few cities, and rural areas. It's the last where Republicans are going to win California, win Connecticut, win Maryland, win New Jersey. Dukakis had a little to hang his hat on, too. One of the things they're very proud of in this election, that they're going to win young voters. Reagan, 80 and 84, had won young voters. Caucus brings them back. Dukakis is going to bring Iowa in. That was kind of surprising. Wisconsin, not as surprising. Farm states had fared poorly during the Reagan administration. Dukakis is the beneficiary. He'll win New York. He'll win a few states. And Democrats will keep the House. I gave it my best shot, Dukakis said. Right track, wrong track. Are you satisfied with the direction of the country? Here's a telling stat. When Dukakis wins the primaries, it's just 41% that say they're satisfied with the direction of the country. It's 59% on election day. That's where I get skeptical, even on those parts of the Democratic campaign that wanted to shift to a more populist message. Maybe it would be better just because the Dukakis standing and message wasn't that good. But is it better enough to win? And when you have right track, wrong track numbers like that, of people who thought that Reagan was doing a good job, 93% of them vote for Bush. 57% think he's doing a good job by election day. How do you run against that? This is going to be a source of debate between political scientists. Let's say like Alan Lickman is one of these guys who has this presidential predictor. It's really the can't what the campaigns do don't matter is his big point. The others, you have campaign people are like, what are you, crazy? And So to a person, the Dukakis team feels like it's always winnable. It's not like just because Reagan's doing well. Sasso says, you know, that may be the case. There may be some truth to that, that everything was against us. The gods were against us. Like, not to use a pun, but Caucus was a victim of some big Greek tragedy. 
But Sasso says, I mean, there may be some truth to it, but then what are you going to do? Caucus thinks it was winnable. Sasso thinks it was winnable. There is a point at which Estridge starts funding state campaigns. And there's a few on the Dukakis team that are like, you know, with Dukakis's approval, let's fund state campaigns. Let's make sure that the Democrats keep Congress. Let's make sure you're not a persona non grata, that you lose close if you're going to lose, that we set up Democrats in four years. And Dukakis leaves the election. I gave it my best shot. In later interviews, he's going to talk about things that he did wrong. Democrats will win in 1992. And so this presidency that was so brutally won is only going to last four years. And that question of how much can a party just keep winning in a row uh, got its answer. Three, you know, at least in modern times. That's uh, And the Democrats were not able to do it in 2000 and not able to do it in uh, 2016. And the Republicans were not able to do it in 2008. So it's not a common occurrence that Bush even won this thing, and it only lasted four years. I equate maybe a little bit of 88 with 28, where friends of Al Smith, you know, Al Smith loses the election, but the votes that he gets are in different places than other Democrats got winning elections. He's getting votes in northern cities that always went Republican. That's set up, and that and the fact that it was a nasty campaign, especially attacks on Al Smith's religion. Not in the mouth of Herbert Hoover himself, surrogates, and especially state parties. It was so nasty that some folks around Al Smith, they were like, we're going to do anything to get a Democrat elected. I mean, they want Smith, but they get FDR elected. There's a lot of negativity caused by a campaign that starts your next base of people for your election. That's a theory. You know, it's one to to examine in the case of 88. It's certainly something that John Sasso felt, as he gives a speech to reporters in the beginning of 89, he certainly felt they had laid some groundwork for the Democrats to be successful and to be thought of as a presidential party. That's something that's so hard to think about now. But when you're talking about 88, especially now the third loss, there was a feeling that Democrats are just not a presidential party. They have the Congress. When people want uh, think of a president, they think Republican. Because remember, Carter won, but that was just a one term. And so for six elections, five of them went to Republicans. And so Bill Clinton will change that. And that's changed our politics as we know it now, that now it's competitive at the presidential level between both sides. Uh, I think there's a strong element that gods are against you. You didn't have a, it wasn't a bad economy, no matter how some parts of the country were doing badly. And I cannot Get away from the fact that the incumbent president took specific actions that people wanted that changed some of the dynamics. Most notably, it wasn't just Dukakis versus Bush. It was Dukakis versus Reagan and Dukakis versus Gorbachev to an extent. Because Reagan in dealing with Gorbachev, that was something Americans were greatly pleased with. I don't ever want to say that Reagan moved left. He he went that direction to a moderate stance on certain things. And uh, tax reform's another area. Working with Bill Bradley. I'm also with the campaign managers. There's Bob Shrum, for instance, says, now, if it was Hart, if it was Biden, if it was Gephardt, we would have won the 1988 election. Dukakis's quirks, if you will, are what lost it. How do you go into a campaign and not think that you're going to have to have a better answer on the death penalty? when 78% of the people are for it. I'm a strong proponent that this invisible election happening in 88 would have made it very difficult for any candidate to win. On the other hand, uh, what happened in 2016? A good campaign can at least keep things close so that 
regardless of how great the economy is, there's still a chance. Maybe turnout's low. I think that certainly saw evidence of that in 2016. Not an easy thing to do, but it keeps that possibility. So you, so you, you have to fault both. Uh, incidentally, I did send an email to Mike Dukakis. I didn't get an answer. But in the past, in past interviews, um, he has said, I think it was a winnable race, and he's admitted to mistakes. So we have to put it there. I hope you enjoyed this series. It's such a rich texture to pull from. I will have an episode on the Patreon, which will go into more detail in a few weeks about the 88 election, all the side stories. If you want to subscribe to the Patreon, that's at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There's a button there for Patreon. Go there, join. It could be as little as $3 a month. Help out, also receive additional content. That's it for our six-part series on the 1988 election. Could you please recommend it to someone? Just either personally, on your blog or social media, what have you, Reddit, whatever you do, please recommend it to someone else that might enjoy hearing this six-part series on an election they could be familiar with or maybe not. If they're younger and weren't around for the 88 election, I think it's okay because I've permanently avoided just using personal experience here and have researched it and have found new things I never was aware of at all. So so either way, I think it's an interesting election to look at to understand our politics today, which is all we're ever trying to do on this podcast. Thanks for listening.